Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future. Brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk with David Lerman, editor of CQ Budget a daily roundup of key federal spending and budget issues. He previously served as a national security reporter for Bloomberg News, where he covered defense spending and foreign policy matters. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman will join me for that conversation. Then, in recognition of the 30th anniversary of Paul Songus' victory in the 1992 New Hampshire Democratic presidential primary, I'll talk with Brian Keene who was a key staffer on that campaign and later became a Concord Coalition field director. Brian is now president of Smart Power, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization focused on renewable energy, energy efficiency, outreach, and marketing. So let's get started with a budget update from David Learman, whose job it is to keep his finger on the pulse of the budget process or to know whether there is a pulse in the budget process. David and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here, Bob. Well, uh, so we're facing a not unusually another government shutdown. There's a um, you know funding uh, cessation, you might say, at the on Friday, February 18th. And so Congress is working diligently this week to try to pass some sort of a uh, continuing resolution or CR to keep things going. Uh, and it looks like they've got a deal on a date anyway. To, <laughs> they, they haven't got a full year appropriations package done yet, even though we're set halfway through the, the fiscal year. But it looks like uh, we're not going to have a shutdown, but uh, they're only going to advance things until March 11th, it looks like. David, what is the, uh, what, what is the current state of play? Yeah, it's always high drama. Uh, this is going to be the third stopgap funding measure Congress has had to pass uh, because they don't, have, they don't have appropriations done. And, and, you know, this is supposed to be, it was supposed to be done by last October, remember, for the start of the fiscal year. And we're still waiting. This has been a perennial problem now, no matter which party is in power, they can't get their work done on time. And so that's what we face again now. Here we are in February and we're, we're looking at they're looking at passing their third stopgap measure or CR. This one extends funding through March 11. That buys them an extra few weeks to get a deal done. But, you know, Bob, the the Politics have been so polarized up on the Hill now that the slightest task has been such a heavy lift. And we see that now with just passing a simple stopgap. It should be a simple thing, right? You just extend current funding levels an extra few weeks just to avoid the shutdown. I mean, who could be opposed to that? The truth is no one really wants a shutdown. I don't think a shutdown is going to happen. But they're so polarized that everyone's trying to use their leverage 
on this must pass bill to score political points before final passage of it. And so now we have this situation where uh, there's going to be a huge fight again over vaccine mandates, where we had six conservative Republican senators write a letter, uh, I think yesterday, uh, to all their colleagues saying, hey, we're putting you on notice here. We're not going to provide the unanimous consent you need to speed up the time to expedite the passage of this stopgap unless we get a vote on an amendment that's going to prohibit funding to enforce any vaccine mandates for the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is a huge partisan battle. It's going to require most likely another vote on the Senate floor uh, because they have to pass the stopgap. So, you know, Republicans have them over a barrel on this. So the only way they can do it is another amendment vote on a vaccine mandate, which most likely will fail, but they need to get that done in order to get the stopgap passed. So uh, are there any uh, any other hurdles that uh, might prevent a, a stopgap? I mean, I, I, I think there are some there's a hold by one of the senators I've, I've heard. And that's right. Yeah. I mean, there, there can be all these extraneous issues, too, that pop up. Um, and one that's gotten a lot of attention in recent days is is uh, Marsha Blackburn, the Tennessee Republican, who placed what's called a legislative hold on the bill so it can't move forward uh, until she gets written confirmation, she says, from the Department of Health and Human Services that there's not a secret plan out there to use federal pandemic aid to provide crack pipes and other <laughs> drug paraphernalia to drug users. There is a there is a, a new pandemic program. I think it was like $30 million roughly that uh, called harm reduction, where they try to, for drug users to try to, you know, limit the harm literally of, of how they're taking drugs. Um, and there was some concern in some, by some media reports that it was going to fund crack pipes and drug paraphernalia that would be cleaner, I guess, than crack pipes they might find on the street or something. And that upset all the conservatives. And so Blackburn put a hold on the bill saying, I want a written assurance that this money won't go to that. Health and Human Services says it won't. They have no intention of that. But until she gets some written confirmation of that, she's not ready to move forward. These are the kind of political dynamics that always come into play, which makes even a simple stopgap funding measure such a heavy lift at a time when, you know, they're just trying to fund the government and keep the lights on. And I just I just before going to Tori, I just want to uh, highlight that you, you said that's a 30 million dollar program. So, I mean, it just shows you how, you know, that's a tiny, 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 tiny. Oh, yeah. Bit of the federal budget. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it, it really, really gets into the weeds. And when you, you got a 50 50 Senate, too, uh, as you know, Joe Biden said, everybody's a president. Everybody's got a veto. So it, uh, it, just to underscore your point, uh, Tori. No, I was just going to add a little bit of color commentary on on the Marsha Blackburn situation. I mean, as, as David like rightly pointed out, this is not the first CR for this year. This is the third. And the fact that this issue is coming up now, I find to be a little bit of a, of a head scratcher. And, and at first I was a little suspicious that she was using this for leverage elsewhere, because obviously they're at a point right now where they need unanimous consent 
in order to move forward on a continuing resolution before funding for the government expires on Friday. So it's a prime opportunity for any senator to step forward and say, "Uh, I'm not going to give my consent until I get fill in the blank. And so I I, I found this this drug paraphernalia issue um, a little interesting timing, given the fact that it wasn't you know, this isn't the first CR of the year. So, um, but as, as David pointed out, I'm glad to hear that, that uh, something's being done. I have to admit that I was a little suspicious. She was looking for something uh, from Tennessee to go into the omnibus. She was buying time to get, you know, leverage to get something into the omnibus for Tennessee. But I don't know, David, any comment? No, this is just what happens, you know, when they, when they're, when they can't have power any any by other, any other means they use the stopgap funding measure because it's a must pass bill and everybody knows that and and so every senator is a king or a queen because mm-hmm. it only takes one of them to hold things up in the senate and so that's they know they have that power and so they're 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 more than happy to use it uh, whenever they can to make a political point. And that's what this is. This is this is politics. It's, it's just to, to score a political point with the conservative base in Blackburn's case. Uh, you know, there was a all that happened here, very frankly, is there was a Fox News report that came out on this. And that's what the Republicans and her base are tuning into. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden, everybody's being told there's going to be federal money for crack pipes. And it got all kind of <laughs> distorted. And so Blackburn seized on that because she knows it's a popular issue with her base and she has the right to do it. And she did. And so uh, that's where we are. And that's why even a simple three week stopgap is such a heavy lift. And this is, as you point out, Tori, this is the third one we've had to do since September already. I mean, that's how behind they are in the appropriations process and how broken uh, the process really is. So go ahead, ahead, Bob. Well, I was just going to say with the once they get we're still just talking about the three week uh, extension here. What about the broader picture of trying to get full year appropriations done? Are they going to do that or are they just going to kick the can down the road and do a full year continuing resolution, which would essentially freeze things at uh, at last year's level for the rest of the year? No, I think they are. Every indication so far, and of course, things can break down, as we know, but every indication so far is they are pretty determined to get this omnibus spending package done. Um, The deadline would be March 11. It looks like they're really negotiating now behind the scenes to make that happen. And we sort of know that because reading the tea leaves here, you know, when they're when the lawmakers are all screaming at each other very publicly in the press, it's because nothing is happening. When when every when everybody's refusing to talk, it means there's deal making going on. <laughs> and and we don't know what the latest deal is, but they're talking right now. And so that's why we have this unusual situation of last week where the top appropriators of both parties came out and said, we finally, after all these months, we finally reached a preliminary kind of what they called a framework for an appropriations deal. And by the way, we're not going to tell you anything about what we agreed to. That was the <laughs> message. Uh, they literally wouldn't say anything about, about what was in there and what they had just agreed to, supposedly. But that tells you that the, it tells me first that the framework deal is very fragile and they ha- maybe haven't worked out all the detailed numbers yet. And so they're worried about 
uh, discussing anything that might then blow up in their face if it goes sour. But it also tells me they're close and they are pretty determined now to get a deal together. Um, and the main thing we know about the deal, um, Bob, is this is there has been for months this this whole thing has been tied up over this fight over what's called parity. Republicans have been pushing for equal increases between defense and non-defense spending. That's been their bottom line insistence saying without that, we won't agree to anything. And, you know, this is Biden's first budget, we should say. It's been over a year, so it's hard to remember that because everything's been delayed for so long. But, you know, this this budget request came a year ago now, almost a year ago. Right. I mean, this is his very first budget proposal of the new administration that they're still wrestling with. And the Democrats, you know, this is the first time they're in power. They've got the Senate, the House and the White House. And what's made this budget so difficult, I think, in particular, is Democrats were trying to use this budget to ram through a lot of domestic spending because they they say it's been sorely underinvested in education and health in environment funding for years with Republicans in power. And so Biden came out with this budget that was lopsided in that direction. And he proposed, remember, it was more than a 16 percent increase in the non-defense spending is what Biden wanted. And he gave defense less than a 2 percent increase, which doesn't even keep up with inflation. So Republicans would argue it's actually a cut to defense. And that was the mismatch. And that's why this process has was has been stuck for months with no movement and why we're on our third stopgap bill is because of this huge mismatch between defense and non-defense, which shows you the competing fiscal priorities of Republicans and Democrats in very stark terms. But look, in a 50-50 Senate, that's a hard thing to untangle, right? I mean, there's no give there. 50-50, you know, both sides have to give to get anything done and neither side was willing to budge for months for months. And of course, with the pandemic raging all the time and a focus was really on emergency pandemic aid, not regular appropriations, which got on the back burner here. So for a combination of reasons, this thing has just been stuck for months. But just last week, um, they did announce what they called this framework deal. No one really knows what it is, but apparently it's some kind of form of parity that both sides can live with. Now, we don't know the details of what how that's going to translate into numbers yet, but that tells me they're pretty close in the numbers that they can. I'm, I'm hearing they're getting their the appropriators getting all their sub allocations going now. So they, they're working out the numbers to make it work. But it sounds like major progress. It sounds like they're determined to get it done and pass it before March 11. Of course, anything can always unravel, particularly in a 50-50 Senate. Mm -hmm. Sticking with the issue of parity for a second, um, I think we all at the beginning of the year figured that we'd have Build Back Better passed by now, which was going to carry a whole bunch of non-defense spending on it. The fact that Build Back Better is, at least the previous House version, is, is dead did that gum up the uh, has that gummed up the appropriations uh, bill a little bit and that you've got progressives that are saying, hey, build back better isn't moving. I'm trying to get all of my spending priorities you know, onto the omnibus bill, which sort of upsets the whole parity issue. And then on the question of parity, 
Are we talking about parity in percentage terms, percentage increases in defense versus non-defense? Are we talking about parity in terms of dollar increases? And I, I know they, th they said that they didn't have a framework yet, but I was wondering if you have any best guesses on, on how they're going to do that, because obviously both sides need to be able to declare victory, right? Republicans need to be able to say, hey, we got parity increase defense with non-defense and progressives need to be able to say, hey, we're spending more in all these other areas than than previously. So. What do you, what is your thought? What are your thoughts about all of that? You raise an, you raise an excellent question. Is it is it a percentage increase or a dollar increase parity? The answer is anybody who knows ain't talking. Uh, we, <laughs> we don't know. Uh, we just don't know. We pressed. Uh, you know, Richard Shelby is a pretty talkative guy, the the ranking Republican on Senate appropriations. We pressed him repeatedly on that very question: is it a is a parity percentage increase or in dollars? And he dodged around that a hundred times, and it was clear he wasn't going to divulge that. So we don't know the we don't know how these numbers are going to translate yet. We're just going to have to hang on and, and see what they do, um, because you know I think it's a fragile thing, and they're not willing to tip their hand on that yet. So that's that's to wait and see. And on your other point, you raise a very good point on the Build Back Better, because that is going to be a frustration, I think. Um, with Build Back Better not going anywhere, at least anytime soon, I would think there is going to be a temptation on the part of Democrats to try to cram some of that money into this omnibus package. But as you point out, Tori, that upsets the defense, non-defense balance. They, they not, may not be able to do that very readily. Now, I've heard no talk that they're actually trying to combine these measures. I, I don't think they really can because of this very problem. In order to get a bipartisan deal here, um, they can't upset the apple cart. And if they try to cram all the Build Back Better stuff into here, the numbers aren't going to work. So I, I don't think that's really an option. But sure, maybe on the margins here and there, is there a program, a smaller dollar program that was in Build Back Better that they could stick into the omnibus? Yeah, they may try to look for ways to do that, but um, they're still holding out hope for uh, some kind of Build Back Better plan, uh, you know, after, after this thing mm -hmm. gets done. You know, the, the process is broken down for years and years and years here. And, and a lot of people have said, well, maybe the thing to do is to bring back earmarks and that will make everything go more smoothly. So, you know, the, the budget caps went off this year. Earmarks are back in. We seem to still be at the same place. So I just wanted to see if you had any observation about whether that introduction of uh, earmarks and the absence of budget caps is, has helped or hurt or had no effect. Yeah, I don't think it in the end it makes that much difference. Um, the rationale for bringing back earmarks is partly partly because lawmakers feel, look, we're we're elected by our representatives. We know our constituents best. We should have the right. Congress has the power of the purse. We should have the right to decide what money goes to local projects. It shouldn't be up to some unelected bureaucrat. And by allowing lawmakers to include these earmark pet projects, you build more political consensus for these for these spending bills to get them passed on a bipartisan basis. That's been the rationale on the margins. I think it's possible earmarks can help grease the skids a little on that kind of thing. You know, this year we just had such a fundamental clash of fiscal priorities that a little thing like earmarks, which is less than one percent of the budget, isn't going to solve that problem. Um, but it, it might help grease the skids, as I say, a little bit. Um, but it, no, it's, I don't think it makes a fundamental difference one way or the other. 
David, can you uh, stick with us just for we need to take a commercial break. I know Tori had a, another sure. question that I'd like to get in. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're talking to David Lerman of CQ Budget. Uh, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And Tori Gorman and I are talking to David Lerman of the CQ Budget uh, Report, which is a highly valuable compendium of uh, all things about the budget and federal spending. Uh, and we're talking about the annual appropriations process. Uh, Tori, uh, you had a question. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, that always comes up the appropriations process every year is the addition of policy riders to appropriations bills. And this year with uh, Democrats uh, having a, a majority in the House, the Senate, and of course, the president uh, of their party in the, the White House, there were some interest in in eliminating some some old <laughs> policy writers number one had to deal with uh, you know family planning and, and abortion otherwise known as the Hyde amendment I'm wondering if you have any information or any guesstimation about how the appropriations are going to handle that in that it's it's it's, it's kind of a you know as a zero one game there it's 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 not necessarily something you can split the baby on so you have any insights on on how they might address the the, the Hyde amendment and and that language in the appropriations legislation yeah you raise a good a good question Tori, because this this has been the other thing that's really held up the appropriations process all year uh is this big fight over abortion funding the Hyde Amendment, it's been for 40 years, the law where it prohibits federal funding of abortions and with only limited exceptions. And it was a sort of a way for appropriators to sort of call a truce in the abortion wars, uh, take it out of the appropriations battle. Whatever you think about abortion, there was just going to be a bipartisan agreement that federal funding wouldn't go to provide abortion services. And that has eroded now. And with Democrats in power across the board this year for the first time, there is a concerted effort by Democratic appropriators to remove the so-called Hyde Amendment language so that there could be federal funding for abortion. And that, of course, incensed Republicans this year. And that is why that's been another huge fight that's that's tied the appropriations process in knots for months. Now, my understanding is where we are now under this framework agreement, this mysterious framework that they've <laughs> announced without explaining, um, my understanding is that what they've agreed to here is to preserve the status quo on policy riders, which would mean the Hyde language stays in place, which is in essence a victory for Republicans. Uh, and that they could only remove policy riders or add new ones if top appropriators from both parties then agreed to it. So my best guess here would be uh, the Hyde language is going to stay and there will be no federal funding for abortions yet again, uh, despite Democrats' best efforts here to to loosen that up. Bob? Yeah, um you know, uh, sometime in the near future, we're going to get uh, a, a budget. Budgets are backing up here. We're supposed to get the second budget from the Biden administration should be coming out sometime in uh, in March. So I, I don't know. Um, 
That's right. How that is going to clog things. It's kind of like, you know, you, you still got a plane on the runway and you got another one that's uh, trying to land. Have you, ha, have you heard any talk about how that's going to, uh, you know, how, how they're going to deal with that? Is just postpone things or? Well, it just shows you how far behind they are, Bob, and what a mess it's been. You know, this appropriations process has been broken for a pretty long time. I think I remember the last time I looked it up. I think the last time they're supposed to approve 12 distinct spending bills every year to fund all federal departments and agencies. I think the last time all 12 were passed as distinct bills was back in 1994. I mean, think how long ago that was, like a quarter of a century ago or more. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just doesn't work. It, it's not it, it, the whole thing um, for a variety of reasons. Part of it is the polarization of our politics. Part of it is, you know, just getting distracted by some big events like the pandemic, like war, you know, things mm -hmm. like that that pop up. And part of it is just sort of. I would argue their laziness. I mean, there's no reason they couldn't get their act together a little better than they do. And that's not a criticism of either party because both parties are guilty of this. They just let it go for as long as they can, you know, because it's hard to cut a bipartisan deal on these. And so they just the, the natural tendency is to procrastinate. Mm -hmm. And so they procrastinate as long as they can until, you know, they see, oh, my God, the government's going to shut down. Maybe we better start talking. I mean, there's no reason the leaders couldn't have sat down a year ago and, and come up with bipartisan top line spending levels so that they could get the process moving. Um, Do you see any don't. possibility of a, a, an automatic continuing resolution? Uh, sometimes people have said, well, maybe if the uh, if all the appropriations bills don't pass, we just have an automatic CR or something like that. Yeah, I know that idea kicks around. There's been some talk of that. I think there was a bill introduced to, to do that. Um, and I guess the, the benefit of that is, it, you know, it would just automatically prevent a government shutdown is the idea. Congress wouldn't have to specifically approve a stopgap funding. They, it would just kick in automatically so they don't have to worry about it. The advantage of that, of course, is that you don't have these, you know, uh, 11th hour death spiral kind of politics come in where where and, and then all these political hot button issues get raised on to, to pass a must pass bill and create all this drama um, over something as simple as keeping the government's lights on. Um, the disadvantage of it would be it could kind of make stopgaps too easy to do and then you just never get to a final deal. Um, so I don't know. Um, I don't I don't think they want to actually I don't think there's enough support to do automatic stopgaps. I don't really expect that to happen, but it is an idea being kicked around uh, and there is legislation on it. We'll see if it gets anywhere. I suspect not. Um, I think they're just going to keep muddling through the way they do. But as you say, Biden's second budget is supposed to come out probably in March, and they don't have the first one done yet. So look where we are and look, <laughs> look how backed up it is. And, and so, you know, the second budget isn't going to get handled for months again because they feel like, well, we just did the budget. We don't have to do it yet. And so they'll push. And with the midterm elections coming up in November, 
I think it's inconceivable they get that done before the midterm elections and agree to another bipartisan spending deal right before the midterm elections. So that means we're going to run on an automatic stopgap again for another half a year, probably before things settle out and and they can they can turn back to it. it it's a, it's really bogged down and messed up. Is and it's and it's and it's sad because. You know, most people don't see the effects of this. As long as the government doesn't actually shut down, most most taxpayers are oblivious to the to where, you know, the appropriations process is so complicated to follow and most people don't follow it. It doesn't get covered in most news outlets. It's it's frankly too detailed and too complicated to even explain to most people. And so most people don't feel the effects. But boy, if 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 you if you are dependent on government services or if you work for the government, you feel the effects and the Pentagon will tell you mm-hmm. how frustrated they are by these automatic, these stopgap funding mm-hmm. measures that really hamstring their abilities. Here we are on the brink of another crisis here in Ukraine with Russian troops massing on the border. The Pentagon can't let new weapons contracts. They can't start new programs. They can't adjust their funding to meet new priorities very easily at all under these stopgap measures. It lets them continue what they're already doing, but it, it doesn't allow for changes in right. most cases. They make a few exceptions, but in most cases they can't. And and there's nothing that the Pentagon brass hates more than these stopgaps. And that's true of a lot of federal agencies that do feel they're really hamstringed here in terms of what they can do. And it po- poses some real problems in terms of hiring, in terms of new projects, all kinds of things that most people won't feel the effects of. But But the government suffers when this happens, and, and we should say so because it, it, it is a problem. And lawmakers get away with it because most people won't feel the effects, so they don't suffer any consequences. As long as they avoid a complete shutdown, they're usually okay and they can usually muddle through. Mm-hmm. This is a leadership issue. The appropriators, to be honest, do work hard. I'm not trying to um, cast aspersions there. You know, they do work hard, they mean well for their constituents and all that. I really think this is a leadership issue where the top congressional leaders, you know, don't sit down to to make the hard call top lines fiscal decisions until very late in the process. I kind of think that has to start at the front end. And if they if they made these bipartisan spending deals at the front end, appropriators would have time to do their work and get it, actually get it done on time. Yeah. But what happens is they, they just sort of start the process and pass partisan spending bills in the House that you know aren't going anywhere and just let the process play along until, uh-oh, we're trapped and, we need, and we're stuck and we need, we're out of time. Um, I, I think it would be incumbent on leadership of both parties to revamp how they organize this to have any shot at getting these spending bills passed on time. That was one of the nice well, things about the Budget Control Act, right? Is that the, at least the two-year deals, not the the ten-year, you know, match these targets, but the the two-year deals. You know, they would set the top-line numbers for defense and non-defense discretionary. At least appropriators knew what they were working with, you know, for two years at a time. That's right, and there has been talk about doing biennial budgeting for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a proposal last year, I think it was, to do two-year budgets for that reason, is because at least then you have some certainty for the following year to have a hope of getting that passed on time. Right. Uh, but that didn't go anywhere either because it, things sort of, you know, once the budget process finally ends, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind, and and I, I think it sort of drops as a priority. And then there's just no 
not enough consensus on what type of changes you'd you'd make there. And it would take a lot of work to revamp this whole budget process. And I don't think they're really willing to invest the time and energy into that with everything else going on. No, it doesn't seem to. Um, well, we're going to have to leave it there for uh, this week. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I have been talking with David Lerman, editor of CQ Budget. I'll be right back after these short messages to talk about Paul Songus's win in the 1992 New Hampshire Democratic primary 30 years ago this week. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. You know, it uh, seems like it was only yesterday, but it was 30 years ago this week that uh, Paul Songus won the New Hampshire Democratic presidential primary, uh, confounding many of the skeptics. And um, so I, I want to bring on uh, right now somebody who had uh, had a big role in that. He must have been about 12 years old at the time. <laughs> but uh, but Brian Keene, who is a deputy campaign manager, uh, helped with uh, setting up several of the uh, states that Paul Songus was campaigning in, including New Hampshire, which was really the big breakthrough state. Brian is now uh, president of Smart Power and will uh, here in uh, Virginia. We'll talk about that uh, a little while uh, towards the end, because there's a kind of a link between uh, where we start and where we end on this. Brian, welcome to uh, Facing the Future. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Bob. It's, uh, I cannot believe it's been 30 years since we won this New Hampshire primary. It's unbelievable. I, 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 can't, I can't believe it either. I mean, it's... A, it's we're still uh, so young. Yeah, I know. <laughs> amazing. Time is, is frozen. Um well, tell us a little bit about uh, that, how you got involved with Paul Songus's presidential campaign, what your role is, and uh, observations about the New Hampshire campaign. Sure. And it was, um, and stop me at any time, so I could talk forever about it, because it was, it was without a doubt a seminal point in my life, um, and, and I know so many other people's lives on that campaign, and also just in New Hampshire. It was, um, to pull you back and to bring it back, it was you know, if you go back to 1991, George H.W. Bush was president um, and uh, his poll numbers at that time were sky high. That uh, President Bush was in the 80s, if not even the 90s at one point. Uh, the, the Iraq war had just ended and he was a national hero. Uh, Colin Powell was a hero. Uh, it was unbelievable. And nobody seemed to be taking on President Bush. Um, so all the kind of, if you will, the top tier candidates had, had not run, uh, Mario Cuomo and all these other folks. Um, I'd been working in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, and there was a rumor that Paul Songus was going to run. And the, the funny thing and kind of the interesting thing was that Paul had been a senator from Massachusetts for one term and had chosen not to run for reelection because of a ca cancer diagnosis back in 1984. Um, but when he decided to run for president in 1991, the, the real question was, who, who is he? And is he, I thought he had cancer. Is he still around? Um, and so the fact that then this former senator from Massachusetts, who people thought had, you know, was, wasn't even around, decided to run for president. Um, quite frankly, this was a campaign that um, a lot of people just dismissed out of hand um, to the point, actually, when I left uh, Capitol Hill, my boss up on, you know, my, the congressman I was working for, 
he just laughed and said like, you know, good luck, but he, he was <laughs> laughing. Um, and so I left, I, I went up to Boston to the campaign headquarters and, and uh, my first job, I, the campaign manager said, uh, a guy named Dennis Cannon, uh, he said, so I, I said to him, I guess, you know, where's the office in New Hampshire? And he said, we don't have one. And I said, well, I think we got to have an office in New Hampshire. And he said, well, do you have a car? And I said, I do. And he said, well, in that case, why don't you go to New Hampshire and open an office and get it all staffed? So my qualification for all of this, and I was, I was 24 years old. So my qualification was that I had a car. So I went up to New Hampshire and uh, up to Manchester and we opened the office and it was an unbelievable experience, an unbelievable time um, that, you know, we, get, we put together this army up there of people who actually believed uh, not just, and it wasn't just, you know, personality driven like we see today in politics. It was message driven by what Paul was talking about. It was about fiscal responsibility. It was about responsibility for the long term of what each of us actually, each individual person collectively then could do for the country and for our future generations. And it was really inspiring. It was really unbelievable. He was uh, inspiring by his own story, um, but then what he kind of conveyed to each of us to do. Um, Anyway, long and short of it is that everyone discounted them. I think there were uh, eight candidates, seven candidates in this uh, in that Democratic primary. Um, everyone from Governor Clinton to uh, Senator Tom Harkin, sitting senator from Iowa, uh, Senator Bob Kerry, senator, senator, senator sitting senator from Nebraska, um, uh, Jerry Brown from California, former governor of California. Um, at the end of the day, Paul Songus was the last standing candidate to then became Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton. Um, so uh, we basically beat everybody except Bill Clinton. We actually won 10 states across the country. Uh, we actually won 10 states across the country before Bill Clinton won one. Um, but it was unbelievable. And when he won the New Hampshire primary, it was a thunderstrike. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, 30 years ago yesterday, 30 years ago on Valentine's Day was Paul's birthday. And um, there was an unbelievable party in Manchester, New Hampshire. And it was just, um, you could just feel it moving. And it wasn't just, you know, a vote against Clinton. Bill Clinton had many kind of challenges in that primary. But by that point, people were engaged in for Paul Saunders. And it was like, yes, then he gets the cover of Time and Newsweek and all that. And it was really just unbelievable. It was just, and it just at my age at then, you know, we were traveling, Paul and I would travel around the country. And we started out, in New Hampshire, just really the two of us. Like we went, I just remember going to an ice cream store, just the two of us, and nobody knew who we was. And like, it was just so <laughs> funny. And then being this like guy, like it was on the cover of Newsweek. It was like, wow, that's unbelievable. So yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. What are you what are you doing? Well, I'm I'm running for president. Um <laughs> we literally so, have people saying, of what? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I, well, exactly. <laughs> You know, and I mean, I had that 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 very similar experience. I mean, because I had I had heard of him because I grew up in Massachusetts. I, I knew who he was. You know, he was my senator when I lived there uh, and I was living in Virginia at the time. And it, it really was that message. I mean, I had that personal experience that you just described. I had the same, you know, when somebody told me that Paul Songus was running for president, I said, well, that's ridiculous. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, you know. Um, and then I. I was drawn in by the message and uh, and decided, hey, look, you know, I mean, you, you, you put your 
money where your mouth is. You're always talking about getting involved, so you should volunteer. So I volunteered. I I called the uh, the the Boston office and uh, was instantly put in charge of uh, Virginia because I was the only one <laughs> in the state that knew who he was. <laughs> Right. Um, I had that that same sort of experience, except I didn't have the pleasure of having Paul Songus in the car with me when I was driving around. So amazing. But, you know, so it's so interesting also going up to New Hampshire because then, you know, people remembered the name. So it's kind of like, you know, Ray Buckley was, uh, I I think even then he was executive director of the the Democratic Party. um, And he was so good to us. um, And Ray is is chair, uh, chair today, still of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire. And he was so good to us, even though he knew his role, he knew he had to be fair to every candidate. Um, and, you know, you, you got to give it to him. Like Paul Songz, at that point, when we got in this thing, was not, uh, he was not a powerhouse. You know? No, I mean, <laughs> but, it, 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 you know, and in those days, people forget, it wasn't that long ago, there was no social media. Exactly. Um, you right. know, high tech was fax machines. So right. how did you, you know, you went up there in your car you <laughs> i mean how'd you go about getting the message out oh it was unbelievable so we had to do um i mean you know the big the big thing we had was we had giant banners that you know we would you know it was a lot of guerrilla attacking basically um uh we would create we would basically go where other candidates were with a group of people in our in our song signs and try to create this you know as they say a potemkin potemkin village is what i think mary mcgrory the washington post columnist called it that Wherever people were, we would have a bunch of songless people there. So it looked like there was this giant, you know, outpouring of huge, you know, huge, you know, grassroots movement for Paul Songs. And it it looked like that at first, and it actually became that. But yeah. so anytime Tom Harkin was in the state, he'd be like, where are all these songless people coming from? Um, or Bob Carey. And it really kind of took on a life of its own. But it could, it wasn't, there was no social media. So it was always kind of the bunch of kids with banners. Um, and signs and that type of stuff, um, and a ton of phone calls. We were just making phone calls constantly, uh, and we didn't have cell phones, so it was you know wired phone calls. Um, but it was really amazing because so so many of the candidates that came up there, and you know Bill Clinton would be coming up, and we'd be with Paul Song signs at his events, um, and Bill was. President Clinton, Governor Clinton, then was only he kind of got in on the joke. Like he knew he knew how that worked. Um, yeah. Tom Harkin was very angry about it, but but, <laughs> but Clinton kind of knew what was going on. So, but it was like, and then if you can get kind of the newspapers start saying like, you know, this huge song is showing at this event and that event, and then it kind of takes on this life, um, and it really works. At the end of the day, what was going on was that you know, uh, even in Iowa. Uh, Tom Harkin was a sitting senator in Iowa, so none of the candidates were taking the Iowa uh, caucuses seriously. Um, but Paul Song has placed second in the Iowa caucuses. Um, and keep in mind, Bob Carey from Nebraska was also in that race, and then sitting in a sitting senator from the next state, and Paul Song has placed second. The message was really breaking through, and it was this very sincere and serious message of um and in what he was what paul i think was really getting credit for was taking the voters seriously and i think we shouldn't lose that today that excited that he really took this voters seriously and understood that they can handle a very difficult and challenging message um and actually make their own and hopeful own decisions and actually from that extrapolate a hopeful message as well because at the end of the day um difficult decisions and difficult challenges 
can have very hopeful messages too. So, you know, all this stuff that we talk about, whether it's fiscal responsibility or, or climate change, um, and even when we talk about Ukraine, they can be actually very hopeful solutions to all of this if we all do our parts. And that's you know, uh, I, I think that uh, we're going to have to wrap it up soon, but we're going to have you back later to talk more about this because Paul Songus's message was very future oriented. And, um, you know, I think that there's a, a kind of a, a link to the environmental movement, which he was very, very much attached to. I mean, you look back at that stuff uh, and, you know, you are working in the environmental field now at, at Smart Power. And, I, you know, I just I want to kind of emphasize that, that these b- both issues, you have to be concerned about the future. And that was that was kind of the link with the Songus campaign. Well, uh, Brian, we're going to have to leave it there this week, but it has been a real pleasure catching up with you again. And we are going to have you back on the show to expand a little bit more on that theme of uh, environmental, uh, the environmental movement, the fiscal responsibility movement. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>